0: Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. God of all creation, send your Holy Spirit among us this day, that the seed of your word might take root in our hearts and bear the fruits of peace, love, and justice for all. Amen. Our scripture today is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Every priest stands every day, serving and offering the same sacrifices over and over, sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when this priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since then, he's waiting until his enemies are made into a footstool for his feet. Because he perfected the people who are being made holy with one offering for all time. The Holy Spirit affirms this when saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will place my laws in their hearts and write them on their hands. And I won't remember their sins and their lawless behavior anymore. When there is forgiveness for these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of Jesus' blood through a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, which is his body, and we have a great high priest over God's house. Therefore, let's draw near with a genuine heart with the certainty that our faith gives us, since our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. Let's hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, because the one who made the promises is reliable. And let us consider each other carefully for the purpose of sparking love and good deeds. Don't stop meeting together with other believers, which some people have gotten into the habit of doing. Instead, encourage each other, especially as you see the day drawing near. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, It is well with my soul. You know, all summer, we have been talking about the relationships that form our foundation in faith. That teach us things like that hymn and write them on our heart so that you don't need the words on the page or the screen. You don't even need the preacher to say, hey, we're going to sing now. But you hear the prompting, and they are there for you. That's what we mean when we talk about the kind of faith that gets formed in relationships. And I know it's been a long journey, right? We have made it to week nine of 11. Hallelujah to all the ADD who have stuck in with us. (laughs) We have talked about the foundational relationship of a creator who, who breathed life into us. We have talked about the ways that our family raised us and taught us lessons like forgiveness. We have talked about the friends and the mentors who form us and who teach us to share our faith. But what happens when the sea billows roll in? When the foundation feels a little uncertain? What then does our faith have to say? I think that we might all be feeling that shake of confidence right now. These are not the easiest times to live in. But it's funny, even though we picked scriptures and themes oh so long ago, Peter's face is just like so, so long ago. It's funny that Hebrews comes up here We'll spend three weeks in Hebrews, but I think it's good because it is a sermon written into times like these. I, just, I had Jake pull together a little bit of a timeline just to kind of start to give you a feel, to paint a picture of the world into which Hebrews is written. We don't have an exact date for this particular sermon, but we know that it's written before 96 A.D. We know because by 96 other people start quoting it like a hymn that people know well. So it's somewhere in the kind of 30 years, 40 years prior. And just to paint a picture, go with me. I know history may not have been your favorite class, but walk with me for just a second. In those years leading up, Paul and James, the two foundational leaders of the church are both arrested and executed. I'm going to let Jake flip to the next one. Yes. Um, So there's a Jewish revolt in Rome. Not so unusual, but this was kind of the worst of all the Jewish revolts. It results in the Romans taking stronger control of Jerusalem, burning down the temple that has still not been rebuilt to this day. The Qumran site, where some of the John writings come from, is destroyed. I'm going to flip to the next one. Rome burns, and Christians are blamed for it. And in response to this and many other of Nero's slightly unstable acts, um, he's overthrown, and a whole new imperial family comes to power. Rome begins two foreign wars, one in Britain, and on the next side, we'll see, one in Germany. And Mount Vesuvius erupts, wiping out Pompeii. And by wiping out, I mean encasing the entire island in ash. It was unstable times. I mean, think about it, just look at that crazy list. They are troubled by foreign wars. They have unstable politics, domestic violence, natural disasters. Even the religious landscape felt uncertain. There was this strange new cult on the rise called The Way, and they followed this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. They even claimed that he'd been raised from the dead. Uncertain times. Dark times. Fearful times. We don't know everything about the writer of Hebrews or the community he wrote to, but we know that they were experiencing some persecution. Fearful times. It's really less of a letter than it is a sermon. So we also know that their preachers clearly got a lot more time than your preacher generally gets. So we're not going to do the whole of Hebrews today, but I encourage you to take a look at the the first ten, nine and a half chapters, ten chapters, because we're going to spend time today in ten, next week in eleven, and the following week just a little bit in twelve. We're going to look at kind of the end of the argument. But Hebrews is really a whole piece together. It's a sermon that does three things. It says, first of all, this is who Jesus Christ was. This is what he did in his death and resurrection. And this is how the life of a disciple is different because of that kind of like what your preachers try to do today, right? This is who Jesus was, this is what his death and resurrection mean, and this is how your life is different because of it. Today where we are in chapter 10, you're starting to hear that turn from what the crucifixion and resurrection did into how your life looks different because of it. The author has gone and made a beautiful, long, eloquent argument, drawing in all of these notes of the temple sacrifice system. Keep in mind, the temple's not really there anymore. But he said, remember that all of those sacrifices, they would go in and every day they would make a sacrifice and they would stay standing, but Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because he made one sacrifice And it's done. Christ's sacrifice matters because it is effective for all. Because the victory is accomplished in the work that Christ has done and is proved in the resurrection. And all that is left now, church, is the waiting. He says, remember what God told you through the prophet Jeremiah. My good Old Testament scholars will recognize those words of Jeremiah 33, and I will write the covenant upon their heart, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. He says, look, Jesus has already done the work. You just hold fast to what is written on your heart. He says, Jesus has accomplished all the great that needs to be done. Hear that good news. It's not about what you do. It's not about what's going on around you. It's not about your political or your military leaders. It's about what Christ has done. And that has washed you clean. And because of that, your life is going to be radically different in three ways. He's a good preacher. He's got three points, right? He said, because of what Christ has done, the people of Christ have confidence. They have hope, and they become a people of community. The people of God are a people of confidence, a people of hope, and a people of community. Because of what Christ has done, we have confidence before God. Now confidence, that's, that's not an ancient word, right? We know that word. We talk about confidence all the time. Any young professional, even young clergy, has probably gotten a lecture of some kind at some point about how important it is to be confident, And when we say the word confidence, usually what we mean is to have enough of a sense of yourself to project your personality when you want to, right? It's to believe that you can do the thing, and more importantly, make other people believe that you can do the thing, whether you can do the thing or not. (laughs) In fact, I was reading an article this week from The Atlantic that said, when it comes to promotions in almost any field, it didn't matter, it comes to promotions in almost any field, the confidence the candidate has is as important as their competency to do the job. Yeah, okay, some of you have the face that I had when I heard that. Their confidence, their ability to make you believe they can do the job is as important as their actual ability to do the job. Confidence is tremendously important. We talk about it an awful lot. And because we talk about it a lot, I want us to be really clear about the word that we read in Hebrews. Because what we translate confidence there in the Greek is just a little bit different. So the Greek word that gets translated as confidence means to have assurance to speak before. To have assurance to speak before, which sounds kind of like confidence as we know it today. But where the difference comes is, is that confidence, this word, would only have applied to people who were members of a household, right? So it was a right conferred on you by your status. You could not have confidence if you were a slave. You could not have confidence if you were a servant. You could not have confidence if you were an outsider or a foreigner. That right was not conferred on you by your status in the household. What all of those big fancy words mean is that confidence was not something that came from inside who we were. It was not a trait you built up or developed. It was not a projection of your personality. It was a right that was given to you. And that's important as we read the words in Hebrews because it reminds us that our confidence before God does not come by our good works. It does not come by our right belief. It does not come by anything that we can say, do, or feel. It comes by the mighty acts that Christ has done through his death and resurrection that gives us the right to stand before God. In Methodist terms, we say it is the gracious gift. Our confidence is not about us. It is a gift that has been given to us through the love of God. And it is a gift that cannot be shaken by our worries or our uncertainties. It does not depend on the strength of your heart. It depends on the covenant that God has chiseled there. And because of that confidence, we can always be a people of hope. I know that he breezed past hope real fast in the reading, right? You got a whole verse. Confidence, we get a paragraph about. Hope, we get a line. Because it's sort of assumed in the community. He says, you will be, he's talking about the hope that we have for what is to come. See, when you are a people of confidence, when you have been granted that right before God by Christ, you know that whatever persecution faces this moment, whatever instability, whatever trouble or disaster, whatever violence threatens, whatever is right before our eyes is not the whole picture of history. To live as a people of God means to live in the hope of the victory that we know has been won and is to come. It is not an easy kind of hope. I know that. But it is a hope that says, I have a light, and the darkness isn't going to put it out. It is a hope that says we are a people of love, and hate will never put it out. It is a hope that says all that might be before me, even if I don't know how it's going to get worked out, I know it is going to get worked out. Because the one who made the promise to me at the cross and the tomb has always been faithful, is always faithful, and will be faithful to the people of God. We've heard this, church. We have. We heard God be faithful to Abraham. We heard God be faithful to Isaac. We heard God be faithful to Jacob. Next week, you're going to get to hear the rest of Hebrews, and he will line out basically every biblical hero you ever heard about in any VBS classroom, and some you probably haven't. If there's anything that the 66 books of that Bible tell us, it's that when God makes a promise... God comes through. So yeah, the line about hope is short because it doesn't need any more proof than this, that when God makes a promise, we can hang on to hope because it will be fulfilled. He's a good preacher, preaching to a worried congregation in unstable times. And so he knows that if they are going to continue to be a people of confidence and a people of hope, then they have to be a people of community. They have to be a people of community. Now, I'm a Louisiana girl, right? So I grew up in Louisiana. I went to college in North Louisiana. And if you're going to drive from North Louisiana all the way to South Louisiana, you have to cross a thing called the Atchafalaya Bridge. Anybody with me? Okay, a few of you are, yes. So in case you don't know, the Atchapalaya Bridge is a miles long bridge over a swamp. There are no off-ramps. The shoulder is about the width of a car when you're lucky. It's not a fun place to drive on a bright and sunny day. And I have crossed that thing in rain that would make a hurricane look like a picnic. So when you're on the bridge with no off-ramp and no shoulder to speak of, and you can't see from me to LM, it's a scary place to be. It feels a little unstable. I don't care how good a driver you are, your confidence gets a little bit shaken. The writer in Hebrews knows that the, the life of faith in this moment, in this uncertain time that he's speaking to this congregation, it's a little bit like that. They can't see very far in front of them. There's nowhere to get off this thing. They can't just stop because, you know, history don't work like that. But if they're going to keep going, keep putting one foot in front of of the other, they have to stick together, because when you try and travel that road alone, it is too easy for the wind to blow you this way and to blow you that. It is too easy to lose your bearings in the midst of the storm and the lightning and the thunder. When you are in uncertain times and the light of hope is small, if you are alone, it is so easy to get lost, to become unsure to feel your footing slip away. You need somebody by your side, ready to grab your hand when you fall, ready to shelter your light when it feels in danger, ready to sing the songs of your heart with you to keep you strong. Community is not always our favorite word in this day and age. One commentator writing about this said, you know, the hard thing about community is it means I have to worship with other people and sing their songs. I have to share my prayer requests when I'm embarrassed about them. I have to listen to really long stories and sermons, and sometimes they're not about me and I don't like that. It's a good, honest honest commentator that says community is hard, but the more uncertain the times, the more necessary the community of God becomes. Because it is easy to give in to fear. It is easy to lose your way without the people to remind you of our hope and where our true confidence lies. I did a lot of reading this week, and I'm gonna ask you to bear with me for just a second, because I got the gracious opportunity to fill in a small gap in my knowledge base. Everybody has those things, right, that you learn along the way and the things that you don't learn. Now, for some of you, When I talk about the late 60s and the early 70s as something I had to read about, you're going to laugh at me. It's fine. I know you still have bell bottoms in the attic. It's great. You can own up to it. You can come tell me all the things afterwards. But for me, the late 60s to the early 70s was this kind of fuzzy cloud, right? Because I grew up in a good educational system where I got lots of ancient history. I got a lot of American history from about the colonial era to the end of World War II. We're solid on that, but usually in my classrooms, we got to the World War II somewhere about April and school ended in May. Right, so we're covering 1950 through 1980, um, in four weeks. When you're covering that much ground in four weeks, you get the headlines, right? I can name the Korean War, I could name the Vietnam War, I could name Martin Luther King Jr. But the stuff on the ground, The sense of the time, what it felt like day-to-day. That was a new experience for me this week. And so when I fell down one of those lovely internet rabbit holes that my generation does sometimes, I got to read lots and lots about that time period. It was kind of an interesting experience. I don't have to tell you, because you know, that it was a time when we were troubled by foreign wars and domestic violence, when politics felt uncertain. And there were, as there are today, natural disasters. Even the landscape of faith felt a little unstable. It was a time when the kind of crazy conversations that had been happening in seminaries for a long time started filtering their way out into the pews. And suddenly we started using words like social justice, progressive theology, liberation theology. Some of the, what we had known as orthodoxy kind of cracked around the edges. In fact, there were people in the world who just kind of got tired and declared that God was dead altogether, and why did I need church to begin with? It was a contentious time. Even the people of God struggled to know who they were. Into this, an Anglican bishop nonetheless, wrote a book called Honest to God, and it was one of those books that some people really liked because it said some kind of crazy things, and some people didn't like because it said some kind of crazy things. And it's not a book that gets remembered much nowadays, but it contributed to that sense of controversy. It was such a big deal when it was written that C.S. Lewis was asked about it in the last interview he gave before he died. And being the good Anglican that he was, he said, No, honest to God, I'd rather be honest before God. It was a contentious time. Even bishops couldn't always be trusted. And into this stepped a retired Anglican priest. He'd served small parishes most of his ministry. And in his retirement, he began to write hymns. Between 1969 and 1983, Fred Pratt Green became one of the most published and influential hymn writers in the English language for the 20th century. And in 1971, largely in response to the religious controversy that surrounded him, he wrote these words. When our confidence is shaken, in beliefs we thought secure, when the spirit in its sickness seeks but cannot find a cure, God is active in the tensions of a faith not yet mature. God is love and thus redeems us in the Christ we crucify. This is God's eternal answer to the world's eternal why. May we, in this faith maturing, be content to live and die. I think we live in a time where we feel troubled. There are statistics that will tell you this is the safest time in the Western world, but when I watch the news, it doesn't feel like that. It feels like an error troubled by war, violence on our shores, an error of unstable politics and even an uncertain religious landscape. But I know the faith in which I have been formed I know the covenant that has been written on my heart. I know that I am not just a daughter of God, but a member of a community, sure in its confidence before the Creator and hopeful to the end that we already know is secure. Even when our confidence is shaken. We know the one who made that promise will be secure. So I'm going to ask you to take a risk. I know new hymns are scary. It's okay. This is number 505 in your hymnal. David and Glenda are going to come forward, and I invite you to stand and to sing. And if new hymns are really hard, to hear these words as we sing together when our confidence is shaken.